Welcome to We Are Meaningful, a podcast where we transform the anonymous experiences of black and brown talent into powerful audio narratives. Each month, we center the dialogue around a common theme, providing you, our listeners, with the tools and resources you need to help navigate, grow, and thrive in corporate spaces. Our stories, experiences, and our voices are meaningful. We are meaningful. The truth is that I'm tired. Tired of fighting every single day. I'm educated, experienced, hardworking, and smart. These qualities would more than justify a leadership position, right? In fact, I've seen many leaders with much less. My truth is, if I were anything other than a black woman, I would be a C-suite executive in my field by now. I wish I had just one story, but I don't. I have many. Detailing the stalls, detours, weight, and hurt that have been permanently mounted to my identity and that I now carry into every new experience. They can't comprehend the ways in which I need to fortify myself to go into work each day and be great at what I do. Sometimes even I can't. Wondering what type of microaggressions, unconscious bias, fragility, privilege I'll have to endure because some non-underrepresented person just doesn't get it. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. Each oppressive word and behavior is like a paper cut. And it's continuous. How can you heal something that's never ending? Or how can you fight it when it's coming from the person who's supposed to support and grow you? What is the subtext that leader gives us? That leadership gives us? What have we missed? And what do we choose to ignore? I've been told unimaginable things. Stuff from tales of workplace horror. One manager told me he and his wife had never had any black friends. I wonder if he had ever admitted that to anyone else. And in what context? What exemption was he hoping for in revealing that fact? Another told me that the company I worked for at the time had no need for diversity and inclusion efforts. What did diversity and inclusion look like to them? Was it about the literal look those initiatives would bring? Who else felt that way? And then there was this director who judged my performance differently than others on the team. He consistently referred to my resilience and my executive presence when we could have talked about my accomplishments. The highest utilization rates and customer reviews in the department. When I broached it, he disregarded my concern as a personality conflict. Why was I held to a different standard than the rest of the team? even if I was doing better. Was his bias unconscious? How can something subliminal be so direct? What was conflicting about our personalities? Our opinions? Or our culture? This behavior harasses, harms, and hurts. So I hope everyone is listening and learns from this. We need to stop burying our heads in the sand as if these situations have no affect, as if they don't exist. 
While I'm tired of fighting to decode and overcome corporate America's subtext, I'm not giving up. Because I can't. We don't have that option. I'm strong, I'm resilient, and we will be victorious. Hi everyone, this is Crystal. And this is Krista. And on this week's episode, we're discussing decoding the subtext with Victoria Walters. Victoria uses she and they pronouns and is a self-proclaimed fat, black, queer femme from the South. She believes deeply in growing through intentional revolutionary education. Victoria is a lover of words, learning, and feelings. With Brene Brown levels of love for vulnerability, Victoria is dedicated to interrogating her biases and working through her stuff. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Thank you so much. I really appreciate y'all letting me be a guest. So you've just had the opportunity to hear Decoding the Subtext. Is that story familiar to you and why? Yes, 100%. This is definitely my experience. Um, For me, it's really wild that people um, are, you know, denying that systemic oppression exists, considering the sheer number of Black women that share this very same experience, right? So for me, the paper cut metaphor was the first time I really learned what microaggressions were. Um, This was like in an RA training um, I had the means of being able to explain that in a way that people couldn't deny, right? So the metaphor of the paper cut and how, you know, one is one thing, but when you have, you know, your entire hand is filled with paper cuts, it's a different situation. Um, I think it's something that I use a lot with students and coworkers and community members and all that because it's a pain that we're all familiar with. And for me, thinking about that familiar, like that familiarity lends itself to people initializing empathy. There first has to be some semblance of common ground in order to build that foundation. Um, And then this experience um, within the decoding the subtext narrative really reminds me of a phenomenon called racial battle fatigue, where in which people of color are literally experiencing burnout due to the lasting effects and amounts of conversation that we have explaining our humanity and teaching majoritized folks how not to oppress us. Wow. I actually never heard of racial battle fatigue. This is me my first either. time. Yeah, so... um I had definitely, like, experienced it a lot, right? Like, where you're just like, I continue to have this conversation, and I don't know, you know, how I can be so tired and exhausted. Like, this has just felt like I have been talking for years, right? And um, a friend of mine and I were talking and this was my, my first year of grad school. So this is 2006, the fall of 2016. And she says, oh, yeah, that's, you know, racial battle fatigue. And as soon as I heard the words, I was like, that is exactly it. I don't know what this is, but we're going to read about it. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm sure I feel it. 
And like you, like you said, once you said the words, I'm like, wait a minute, that is exactly how I feel, but had never heard of it. Yeah. And so I felt affirmed um, immediately (laughs) in hearing those three words strung together where, you know, I had used them obviously individually, but to have that phrase um, for this experience that I was having that a lot of my colleagues and a lot of my community members and um, comrades are having was really important it's a lot um and I don't want someone else to you know deal with that sort of ignorance but right also just I'm tired right (laughs) (laughs) and that it it truly does make um a lot of sense I know that sometimes right especially we don't have the privilege of being tired right Mm -hmm. if we're tired in a space people look at us in a really funny way or they are like are you okay what's wrong with you or we're perceived as like aggressive or standoffish or intimidating or unapproachable whatever you want to call it right what you just said really reminds me of a concept that i call the expectation of evervescence we're in which women of color and more specifically black women uh black women and femmes are supposed to be this unending well of vivacity and enthusiasm, despite whatever we're going through or however someone has spoken to us or how we've been done. Um, It's the standard that we're held to that really perpetuates this resilience myth where a black person, a person of color um, who can withstand any and every adversity thrust upon them, simply by sheer force of will and good old-fashioned resilience and it puts this supernatural expectation on us to be stronger sturdier and altogether less human um this is really long-term effects that contribute to poor mental health being overworked and underpaid having low self-esteem you know because if i were stronger i could handle this and that's wrong like that's that's having a true negative um, impacts on tons of people because they think that they should be able to carry a heavier burden simply because, oh, well, you were made from better stock than that. What? Right. And yeah. the minute you show vulnerability or you show emotion in a way that they perceive as weakness, right? Especially as women of color, it's why are you being so emotional? Why are you being hysterical? Or you're an angry black woman. Or feisty. Or spicy. Yeah, spicy. <laughs> Let's not forget that one. It's so funny. I've been in meetings with people where I'm literally just listening to what it is that you're saying, taking in what's been said and just trying to figure out where do we go from here. And someone said to me, Crystal, are you okay? You look like you aren't okay. I'm like, I'm just existing. Can I just exist and think? Because I can't just be, like you said, this overflowing well of joy, visible joy all the time that is exhausting and very much tiring. Right. And sometimes it can be even more annoying because you get it from your superiors, like the people you're supposed to trust, right? The people who are supposed to be supporting you and giving you that safe space so that you can be your best and most authentic self and you get it from them. And that 
that ends up really kind of messing with like the psychological safety that you establish for your workspace. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the kids saying? Woo Chile. Um, Chile. <laughs> <yeah>. I... <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, like I, I really identify with that part about having to explain things to your superiors and um, especially things that they should already know. Right. And we hear all the time, uh, wild statements in corporate spaces, whether or not we bring them to our superiors is a whole other thing, right? Whether or not they- they're from your superiors. Exactly, exactly. Like be be real, rapid fire. Some of the statements that I'm about to say, like just what's your initial reaction? You're the whitest black person I know. You're such an Oreo. You're such a pretty black girl. You're so pretty for a black girl. Okay, uh, you're the whitest black person I know. Um, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind when someone says that is like, what about me screams colonizer? Uh. Um, <laughs> but, like, that's truly like, what's wrong with you? Like, are you okay? Like, not only did you think this mess, but you then had the audacity to vocalize it to me. Like, I just. I, you know, part of me just goes, what have I done wrong that you feel, you know, safe enough to say that to me? Like, this is just, that's not okay. Um, it's a compliment, remember? That's wild. And like, <laughs> I realized to some, like, that might sound like really like crude or harsh, but like, that is so incredibly offensive, right? And that's 1000% off-putting to me. And typically, you know, like those things are said in reference to the way in which I speak, the activities I'm interested in, and even like the media I engage with, right? So the music I like, the movies I watch and TV and all that. And for me, it's hella problematic because it assumes that Blackness is a monolith, you know, and that individuality is reserved for the minoritized. And note that I say minoritized or majoritized instead of majority because these systems of oppression didn't just happen. They were specifically engineered and are continually enforced and encouraged. Oppression is active and not passive. And for me, you know, to refer to a dominant group as the majority, no, like this is, this happened. This was constructed. We're not going to act like, oh, well, you know, just so no this is actively happening i love that you said oppression is active Mm -hmm. not i knew it i knew you were gonna pick up on that (laughs) because it really speaks to what we have to do to dismantle these systems we can't just bury our heads in the sand and be passive about it and say well i'm not doing anything specifically as an individual i'm not running around in a hood i'm not running around screaming racial epithets So I'm fine, which isn't true. And we have to actually be active when it comes to dismantling these systems. True. And I think a lot of people have this view of what, um, so when I like explain this in in conversations, presentations and papers and all this, I refer to it as capital R racism. Um, And so people are just like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, the KKK and saying the N word and, you know, calling people this or you know concentration camps are bad and it's like so what do you think ice detention centers are right (laughs) and it's just like we have to be uh really vigilant to make sure that we're understanding that it's not 
just about individual participation in this because racism, sexism, uh, homophobia, you know, transphobia, ableism, these are all systems of oppression, right? Yeah. And so thinking about the fact that like our society um, is literally built on the backs of the disenfranchised. They like di- again disenfranchised, right? Like mm-hmm. this was done purposely and continuously. Still and isn't today, it funny that people think that oh, those are the things that are going on out there. They aren't really going on in our workplaces which is totally incorrect because the same things that are happening out in the world are the things that influence your decisions in the workplace. 400%. And again, thinking about this from like a a systematic view as well, is that like capitalism doesn't exist without white supremacy, you know, like all of these things are leaning on each other and we can't, you know, tackle one without it toppling the other and we need to just realize like how truly interconnected and interwoven all of you know these experiences are and so to you know think that oh well this is you know a workplace where we're all family one it like any place it's just like oh this is a family no that's code for i'm going to (laughs) overwork you and Mm -hmm. you and not compensate you properly or at all for the work that you're doing i'm also going to appropriate your ideas and not give you credit and like absolutely not okay because um no like <laughs> I know every time I walk into a space and they're like we're like a family the first thing I think is how long will it take you to be inappropriate with me yeah and then that's another thing is just like even with the the family thing right you're you're acting as if everyone is coming from families that are supportive you're acting as if everyone's coming from families that you know like respect <laughs> them which right. is like that's not my experience okay and so like we're mm-mm, we're not gonna do that no, yeah no. so when we think about all the different things that we've just talked about I feel like it's so heavy it's almost like this backpack you're walking around with this backpack on and it's getting heavier and heavier and heavier so what do you feel that the impact of carrying this backpack or hearing these statements has on you um, I feel really gross, honestly, uh, because I know how prevalent these statements are and um, the effects that they can really have on folks. I think about all the years that I weren't, that like I yearned for whiteness, not, you know, necessarily mm. to be white, but to have the things that whiteness imbues to you, right? Right. Um, these statements are really cringeworthy for me because I've thought and said them to myself and about myself for years, right? Like I was ingesting the vitriol that is white supremacy and Eurocentric beauty standards without realizing it for the first 18 years of my life. I was hell-bent on being, you know, the special limited existing Black person because I didn't see value in being Black. And phrases like this helped me get there. Um, If behaving in a manner that prompted people to make ostensibly 
positive connections between myself and another race other than my own, I did the equation real quick and realized that X equaled Black was bad. And so I distanced myself from my culture, from my people, and from anything that would, you know, make me lose my, you know, special limited edition Black person spot in the eyes of um, majoritized folks, right? And I really missed out on community because of that. And I hated myself for the better part of a decade because of it. Um, I sought relationships that affirm these lies about myself. And that was super damaging, you know, to... I want to say like this really started my sixth grade year and for a 12 year old to completely change the way, you know, they speak and they dress and what, like, how can our colleagues in the dominant group do better? Right. And then what can we do as black and brown women to navigate these situations and maintain our psychological safety? grip it with every nail. (laughs) Okay. Um, First thing is that um, how can our colleagues do better? Um, I put this on my door, um, um, on my office door, because I want any and everyone to know um, what conversation we're, conversations we're about to have, we're likely to have. Um, don't be surprised when it happens. But it's an Angela Davis quote that says, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. And to kind of break that down, it's going back to the point earlier of just like, oh, I'm not a part of this. I don't say this. I don't know. But like, how are you actively disengaging from systems that privilege you how are you actively you know divesting from um this power structure that allows you to take up more space that allows you to have a voice when others don't that continually is um appropriating things from people of color that is um bent like that is hellbent on um, prioritizing your needs and your wants over the wants and needs of, you know, other marginalized folks. So I think the first step is education, because while, yes, empathy is is really important for folks, I need um, people to realize that issues surrounding race relations go much farther than slavery, internment camps, Indian removal acts, and and the Holocaust, right? So I say all the time that you should read as much about racism literature written by people of color, right? And I say that because I think that there is a lot... um, and hearing those firsthand accounts, right, where someone has taken the time to write their thoughts out about something very vulnerable, something very real to them, read that. So you're not, you know, going up to the the first brown person you're seeing and saying, like, hey, let me pick your brain. This person has already, you know, gotten a book deal. Go give them their coins. Okay, cool. 
second step is definitely putting that knowledge into practice. We can't be out here, you know, knowing things are wrong and not doing anything about it. We have a responsibility to support each other, to foster relationships and build together. And it is unrealistic and self-serving to think that we aren't a part of the problem and therefore shouldn't be a part of the solution. Um, third is divest from your privilege. When you realize that you're benefiting from racism, don't just accept that, challenge that, right? You have a power and a voice that um, people of color don't get to have. And so you are in spaces that I will never be allowed into. And that is a place that you should be challenging. And when we're, you know, say like in mixed company, if you will, right? Like, that is the time for you to use yourself as a microphone, right? To amplify the voices of the disenfranchised in the room with you. Um, for let your coins line some pockets, right? So thinking about you need to not only let your actions speak, but you need to let your money speak. So a person of color took time out of their day to explain why what you said was messed up, cash app them, Venmo them, any of that. You know, a brown grad student or intern has had to sift through bigoted tweets for your company or your department. Buy them a meal, like make your money practice equity. Um, and then one of the, the next thing is like acknowledge that change doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? What I mean by that is that on your way to enlightenment, self-awareness, all of this, you definitely have hurt folks. So address that and apologies need to be made and aim to make restitution if that's what the affected party wants, but like acknowledge that even on your journey, you still like there's going to be mess ups and, and own that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that's really hard for people that are on their journey to becoming more anti-racist. The fragility kicks in and they don't want to be wrong. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want anyone to call them out or call them in, as I call it. So it's really difficult for people to just start. Yeah, and, and thinking about like, I, 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 you are focusing yourself instead of centering the affected parties. And so push through that. Let yourself be uncomfortable because when we are uncomfortable, that is the only time that we grow. So what do we do as underrepresented people? Um, a therapy, that's it. That's the tweet. Yep. <laughs> so take time off. Um, realize that no is a full sentence. Tell people you do not have the capacity to have certain conversations with them, even and especially if y'all have a previously established positive relationship. Um, and I cannot stress this enough. If you are able financially to leave situations that are not safe, leave them. Uh, that may look like job searching on the clock. That may be saving as much as your paycheck as possible to start a cushion. It may be cow chopping. Um, if it is an option, I want people to really thoroughly consider that without shame. Um, your safety shouldn't be a bonus. It's a requirement. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Psychological safety is so important. And I think that for so long, if you haven't been in a workplace where you feel valued, respected, and heard, you almost feel like that's what it's supposed to be like. Exactly. It's not supposed to struggle in the workplace. It's not supposed to be great. It's work. But I'm here to tell you that there are workplaces out there that are psychologically safe. Mm 
in places where you will feel welcome, valued, and heard. So if you're listening to this and you feel like you have to deal with something, you really don't. There are spaces out there for you. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so don't get mad, but I have a question that I that I thought of. It's that time of the show where Krista throws a wrench in it all um, <laughs> with like her random questions. So I'm really relating to you. I'm really connecting with you. It would be important for me to ask you, Victoria, we go through all this work, right, of managing our identity almost. We talked about when we were younger a little bit, how we do so much to be seen as accepted. And when you're of color, you're doing it in a way that's detrimental to your authentic identity almost. How does that impact the way our peers connect with us? Like when we're growing up, when we get older, it kind of feels like we're walking this tightrope, right? Just to give you like a personal example, I'm never enough. So I'm half Colombian, I'm half Guyanese, I'm whole American, but I'm never enough. I'm never enough for the Colombians. I'm never enough for the Guyanese. I literally had someone say to me once, why don't you act more Guyanese? You only ever act like you're Colombian. And I had no idea what that meant, but it had taken me so long to get to the point where I was even proud to talk about those things because I had spent so much of my childhood trying to whitewash everything that it was weird for me that I had finally come to this point and it just feel like my community still didn't accept me enough. They still didn't feel like I fit the box, the label, the special edition was still too powerful for them. Yeah, um, I remember during my very rapid um, identity development that happened, you know, where I'm spanning, you know, the eight out of the nine levels in a matter of six months, that was a lot, but, um, I wanted to be with other Black folk, right? I wanted to, you know, do that. And so I felt like I couldn't, I wasn't Black enough. I felt like mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, down enough or like I didn't have the same references and right. all of that and cultural touch points. And that was just like, I don't know how to do this. And so I ended up like trying to create my own you know, spaces with other folks who had similar experiences to me, right? And so for me to, you know, kind of build that sort of community with folks who were also kind of waking up and coming out of the fog, like they were, you know, <laughs> leaving the the sleep um, was really <laughs> important for me to be able to build that. And then also it was an opportunity for me um, maybe like a year into that to really, truly, honestly come to terms with the fact that it wasn't just them keeping me out, right? Mm -hmm. It it was the fact (laughs) that I still was dealing with a lot of internalized bias against Black people Mm -hmm. where in which oh, I can't go in this multicultural center right now because, oh, they're going to laugh at me. Oh, they're going to do this because I'm automatically putting aggressive traits on the Black people. Like, check yourself, sis. What are you doing? <laughs> right? Like, automatically assuming that these people are going to be mean. Like, you're truly that white woman clutching her pearls right now. Like, mm-hmm. b- do better. Um, 
And so once I, you know, worked through that and got over, you know, my own the hangups, right? We're like, I'm what, you're gonna be scared of black people? Like, girl. Um, that allowed for me to build those relationships with folks, you know, who had grown up always knowing and feeling and being affirmed in their blackness by, you know, their community and their family. And turns out they were also affected by white supremacy just in a different way. So like none of us are safe. Um, So there's that. And as far as like now, sometimes I, so like I know 400%, like I am enough. I'm black enough. I'm, you know, like, okay, like, again, like, what are you going to tell me? Like, I'm not Black. Um, I do find myself when I have to assimilate in order to get things done, right, is that I'm speaking, uh, like, and you're code switching, right? You're you're having to speak a certain way or dress a certain way or, like, you know, use certain language or I can't say, you know, yo, that was racist. (laughs) Like, I have to say, like, oh, I want to challenge that, right? Because... Mm -hmm. In order to be the most productive, I have to, you know, deal with other people's feelings um, and challenge them in a way that they feel safe enough to still engage, which is troubling. But, you know, you do what you got to do. I find myself giving visual cues to other um, brown folk that I'm interacting with so that they know, like, nah, like, I get it. Like, I'm down. Like, I, like... (laughs) like I get it like when I I'm I'm here for us right and so sometimes what that looks like is you know I'm um giving a keynote or I'm on a panel or I'm doing a presentation or you know I'm in some sort of space that is like super duper posh and professional and I specifically okay put on a head wrap and some big door knocker earrings because I want them to like visually get that cue like oh okay she gets it right because I realized that those things are not um like when you go to you know google google like um business professional you're not gonna see that right Mm -hmm. and so by you know blending you know wearing a you know double-breasted suit with a head wrap and, and big gold earrings like you see like oh like she gets it all right cool because like I I I do those things so that I don't feel like I'm losing part of myself and assimilating to a point that I don't recognize myself, right? Um, And that's not, again, obviously to be like a caricature of what, you know, Blackness is or what Black womanhood is or Black, you know, femininity is. But I also, you know, want other folks of my community and other brown folks to realize, you know, like you can exist as your whole self without having to compromise cultural points, without having to give up who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And we are, Chris, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like we are honored to have the opportunity to talk to you today, especially hearing your vulnerability and just hearing about how you've transformed from someone who hated themselves to someone who has educated themselves about how you got there 
and now where you are today, where you love yourself inside and out and you're encouraging other people to do the same. Well, thank you so much. And I actually have another question for you, even though we're supposed to be wrapping up. I love it. <laughs> you say 400% a lot. What does that mean? Um, well, I'm extra, um, just in general as a person. Um, and so when I'm saying like 400%, like I just really, 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 truly need y'all to understand how real it is. Right. And yeah. So it's real, 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 It's real. It's really real. It's the real, real. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the We Are Meaningful podcast. Follow us on Instagram at wearemeaningful.co and visit our website to learn more about our community and how you can get involved. We're excited to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Talk to you next week.